This is History 605, where we discuss everything from Crazy Horse to cyberspace. I'm Dr. Ben Jones, South Dakota State Historian and Director of the South Dakota State Historical Society. Welcome to the show. Well, welcome to another episode of History 605. Another episode of History 605. We're so excited. This is, in many ways, a special episode. We have a, um, a guest uh, that's going to talk w- with us today about an exhibit that's coming to South Dakota, first in Sioux Falls and then in Rapid City. Dr. Marlene Yahalem, Director of Education for the American Society of Yad Vashim in New York City, is going to be sharing with us about the exhibit named No Child's Play regarding the Holocaust. And one might ask, what does the Holocaust have to do with South Dakota? Well, as our conversation uh, continues, uh, hopefully you'll get some insight into that. Uh, Not only its presence of the exhibit here in South Dakota, but also opportunity that we all have to learn from that event that occurred as a part of the Second World War. So Marlena, welcome to the show. Thank you so much, Ben. I'm I'm wondering if you can tell us a little bit about uh, your organization, Yad Vashim, and what it does and what its mission is in the United States. I work for the American Society for Yad Vashem. We are based in New York City. The American Society for Yad Vashem was established in 1981 by a group of Holocaust survivors. Uh, the founding chairman is Mr. Eli Sparowski, and we work in partnership with Yad Vashem which is located in Jerusalem in areas of Holocaust education, commemoration, Holocaust memory, and impactful philanthropy. Uh, The organization in Israel, Yad Vashem, was established in 1953 by a mandate from the Israeli parliament. I'm wondering if you can describe the exhibit No Child's Play and what it's about. Uh, No Child's Play is an exhibit that was created by Yad Vashem to share with the world the experience of survival and resilience of Jewish children during the Holocaust. The exhibit was created in memory of the one and a half Jewish million children that perished during the Holocaust, and as a lasting tribute to Dr. Janusz Korczak. In about uh, 2001, Yad Vashem sent out a notice throughout Israel to all Holocaust survivors who were children during the the war, during the Holocaust, and asked them to donate artifacts uh, that would be uh, photographs, toys, games, uh, jewelry, uh, drawings, scrapbooks, anything that uh, they were able to keep and save that helped them cope during the war. And the idea was to show that the experience of Jewish children coping during the war is not that much different than children today coping through challenging times, only that, of course, the context was so different. Mm -hmm. So Yad Vashem received all these artifacts. Uh, The archives division verified the artifacts. The museum's division curated the exhibit. And the International School for Holocaust Studies developed educational resources uh, to share this exhibit uh, literally all around the world. In 2006, the exhibit uh, made its first debut in the United States at the United Nations on January 27th, which is the date designated for International Holocaust Remembrance Day. We received the exhibit after that initial appearance, and we circulated our, the exhibit around the country. The name No Child's Play refers to a quote from Dr. Janusz Korczak, who was a child psychologist and educator 
during the Holocaust who ran an orphanage for Jewish children in the Warsaw Ghetto, and he was a firm believer in treating children uh, in a very special way, and he wrote uh, articles about child development and child psychology, claiming that the experience of Jewish children during the Holocaust is no child's play. So mm-hmm. whoever gets to see the exhibit in the next, uh, you know, in the two weeks that it's going to be visiting um, you guys, mm-hmm. uh, you'll see that a part of the title of the exhibit is in quotes. Uh, the title is No Child's Play, Creativity in Children During the Holocaust. So the quote quotation part uh, is a tribute to Dr. Janusz Korczak because when the Warsaw Ghetto was liquidated in July of 1942 and all the Jews living in the Warsaw Ghetto were deported to the Treblinka extermination camp, Dr. Janusz Korczak, who was so respected in the Jewish and non-Jewish community, was given the choice of Uh, being saved and seeking refuge on the non-Jewish side of the ghetto. But he chose to remain with his 200 children, and he was deported with them to Treblinka. Hmm. So the exhibit is a tribute to him. The the name of the exhibit is uh, acknowledging his work, and it's a tribute, as I said earlier, to the one-and-a-half Jewish children killed during the war. Yes, the one-and-a-half million, yes. That number is just unimaginable. The number's just unimaginable. Um, so I guess the exhibit, though, exists of photographs of these articles, or how is how is it designed and put together? Uh, the, the exhibit is a combination of images on about 18 panels. Each uh, panel has testimonial information, historical information, and images of the artifacts that were donated to Yad Vashem to create the exhibit. So you may see uh, black and white photographs, you may see drawings, you may see poetry, uh, pictures of toys, teddy bears and dolls, and uh, pieces of jewelry. They're very carefully uh, displayed on each panel. The exhibit itself uh, is divided into three different time periods. A portion of the panels talk about how children lived before the war, meaning before 1939, A portion of the exhibit is the experience of children during the war, so that would be 1939 to 1945. And a portion of the exhibit, the final panels, talk about life, rebirth, and survival after 1945. And the idea is to show the life of Jews, and here Jewish children, that they were regular people living a normal life, and sadly horrific things happened to them, but after the war was over, there was rebirth, mm-hmm. a resilience, and survival. So it's not just focusing on uh, the death that occurred, but also the life that was sustained uh, during these years. Right. Is there other examples of that uh, that latter time um, after that that kind of come to light in the panels or in the exhibit? That uh... Uh, yes. Um, The final panels show uh, children uh, much healthier looking than the photographs that you would see Mm -hmm. in the the war years. Uh, They're healthier. They're cleaner looking. They have uh, clean clothing. The toys are in good shape. There's even a beautiful picture of a girl uh, with a pet, you know, really similar ways that uh, children would be playing or coping, you know, today. Uh, the final picture is a picture of an eight-year-old boy who was liberated from the Buchenwald concentration camp. This is a picture of 
Rabbi Israel Mayer Lau as a child. He's a child survivor of the Holocaust. He later became one of the chief rabbis of Israel. Mm-hmm. And today he's on the directorate of Yad Vashem itself. Uh, he speaks um, uh, several languages and speaks all around the world, giving testimony to his experiences. And the idea is to show that children did survive, mm-hmm. were able to rebuild a life for themselves and, and thrive. Right. Well, that hope um, is always vital in times like this and in, uh, also in times we live in today. Um, so I guess in that regard, it's a wonderful exhibition of human courage and striving for more hope. I did some digging in the archives in, in Pier, and um turns out that uh, a soldier, a Second World War soldier from Yankton, South Dakota, was a part of a hospital evac unit in, uh, that entered the camp in Dachau. Dachau was one of what now we know to be a network of thousands of installations that were a part of the Holocaust system and so forth. And he, as this evac hospital unit entered Dachau, they, he writes home to his mother. The first thing he says is, uh, the censors let us say whatever we wanted. World War II soldiers were heavily edited in what they could say about uh, where they were and what was happening to them as they wrote letters home and so forth. General Eisenhower made sure everybody could come see these camps. All the American troops, if they wanted to, could, could come see them, and that uh, the censors lifted all the restrictions. And so he he writes to his mother that they found, and I'm quoting now, 35,000 to 40,000 maltreated peoples of all nations at the camp in Dachau, which is just west of Munich. He was there between uh, 2 May and June 14th of 1945, and uh, began to care, be a part of a larger hospital unit that began to care for all of these people. And while they were there, 246 of these former prisoners died of disease, uh, malnutrition, typhus, diarrhea, or a combination of all these illnesses at that time. And then the hospital was packed up, and the 15th of June, they were shipping out to go to the Pacific Theater for the invasion of Japan. It just strikes me that he finds, as he's walking into this area in Germany with war and calamity happening all around him and finding these people in their worst of possible uh, human situation. He is now heading off to continue a very different war in a very different place, and it just all goes to show, wow, 1945 is such a different era and so forth, but the universality or the common nature of it, I think kids remain the same in a lot of ways, and I hope that uh, people come to see this exhibit and see some of that commonness that we have with kids from the 1940s. I would like to uh, touch on something you mentioned in this uh, great description Mm -hmm. of uh, what the soldier you're talking about. You mentioned uh, then General Eisenhower encouraging journalists and photographers to go see the camps. I would like to mention that uh, Eisenhower had the vision to understand the threat of Holocaust denial. And When he encouraged uh, photographers and journalists to uh, go uh, look around the camp, take pictures, and write what they saw, he insisted that they complete sworn affidavits about what they saw at this time um, because he realized that this information would be challenged down the road for people thinking it didn't happen or people trying to convince the world that it did not happen, now known as Holocaust deniers. Mm -hmm. 
So uh, General Eisenhower's uh, instinct was correct because that is indeed a big challenge we all face. So any kind of testimony uh, is so valuable today. Any mm -hmm. kind of resource that we can use to teach children and empower teachers to teach this subject is so valuable uh, looking to learning the information and preserving it correctly for the future. Right, exactly right. The Holocaust is a rich learning ground for a lot of different aspects of human behavior and history, literature, poem, photography, just a wide variety of things. Um, it's so true. It really shows the wide range of uh, human behavior, um, the utmost evil and mm -hmm. the utmost kindness, where you have heroes who risked their lives to save Jews when they, these Jewish people were perfect strangers to them. They just felt the moral uh, obligation to do the right thing, that even in such times that, that was possible. Right. Again, the show, uh, the exhibit, comes to Sioux Falls next week. It'll be here the first week of November at the Washington Pavilion. The second week of November, it will be at the Journey Museum in Rapid City. And uh, we certainly appreciate the, the opportunity to chat with you today. While we were talking with Marlene, uh, Lori Walsh had some questions, and so I invited her into the show, and so she joined us for the rest of the conversation. So it was great to have Lori as a part of History 605. I'm hoping that you'll go back and talk about Dr. Korchek a little bit, and some of the things that he was, as he was running this orphanage, we remember his ending, his getting in the in the path of the Nazi regime with the children is is often what we remember. But he was doing so much to help children escape, and he was doing so much to help them survive. Say more about him, if you will, for listeners who aren't familiar with the kinds of structures that he put in place that helped children survive emotionally. Thank you for the question. Uh, first, Dr. Korczak, uh, although that's such a, it sounds like such a Polish name, his name at birth was Henrik Goldschmidt. He was mm -hmm. born in Poland and had a very uh, interesting life story, but eventually changed his name to Janusz Korczak and was fascinated with the growth and development of children. He wrote extensively on the mind of a child, the behavior of a child, and how to treat children and respect their values and their individuality. Uh, his orphanage was very well known. Uh, he had a handful of staff that were very loyal with him, and they uh, went with him uh, when they were deported uh, to Treblinka. And even uh, it's written that even when they were rounded up and uh, boarded the trains to go to Treblinka, each child was dressed impeccably as if they were going on this great trip. He didn't want them to feel that they were in any danger. His philosophy with children was to treat them as, as people and not just small children. He took children very seriously. He was respected in both the Jewish community and the Polish community to the extent that there are monuments in Israel at Yad Vashem in memory of Dr. Korczak. There's a whole area that's called uh, Janusz Korczak Plaza. There are twin monu monuments in Poland with the same dignity and the same reverence uh, to honor Dr. Korczak's memory, even though uh, he was Jewish. The fact that he went to Treblinka with his children shows an incredible amount of heroism and dedication. He had no children of his own, 
So all the 200 children, he, he treated them as if they were his uh, real children, so to speak. And it's just a life of incredible heroism and integrity that we can all learn from. As they're in this orphanage, they see they're hungry, they're starving, they're trying to survive, and he is finding ways to help them sleep at night, even. He's very yeah. engaged in this, this meaning and this purpose that he has. Those kinds of actions from heroic adults when we look at survivors of the Holocaust and some of the reasons some of them have been able to thrive so abundantly and change the world after World War II, how much are things like that that happened in their childhood, the adults who walked alongside of them, help us understand a little bit about how a human child grows up and becomes a functioning adult after experiencing such evil? I, I don't know how to answer that question because there are so many possibilities for an answer. I, I'm happy to share with you from my own family uh, what I think uh, would um, help shed light on this great question. Um, both of my parents and all four of my grandparents survived the Holocaust. And thankfully, they did so in pretty good health. And they, they rebuilt their lives and were successful and thriving individuals, uh, restarting their lives and building a family and successful uh, professionally as well to see, you know, grandchildren and continuity. I think um, a lot of the skills of survival had to do with luck. There's really um, no single explanation. It had to do with luck and circumstance and just, uh, the opportunities that you had to, to really stay breathing every day. Of course, it also depended on which country you were in, because not every country treated Jews the same way. Even though all the countries were under an, a Nazi government, it had to do with the opportunities that you had or that you were able to make for yourself. So um, while that's such a great question, uh, honestly, it's very hard to answer really what the single reason is. I, I do believe a lot of it had to do with luck. Mm. Um, it's not that people were good or bad and that's why, you know, they survived or not. It's just a combination of factors that um, is, is very hard to understand. There's also no way of knowing because there's no real control group, thank God, you know, to this horrible historical event. To me, I know from the six people I mentioned, they mm -hmm. just always consider themselves very lucky that they had the opportunities to carve out a way to, to survive the war because so many of my family members did not. What's your earliest memory of hearing some of these stories from family members who survived? Uh, it would be my parents uh, sharing with me about their siblings who were killed. I think my family situation is a little bit different because it's very unusual for families to survive the Holocaust with parents. Both my parents survived with their parents, even though during the war they weren't together. Uh, most people I know that are second generation, which means their parents survived the Holocaust, grew up without grandparents. I would say from a lot of my friends in this category, their first stories were probably about the grandparents that they would never meet. Yeah. So for my parents, it would be the aunts and uncles that I would never meet or their hometown or childhood memories just to have a feeling that 
although these horrific things happened, there was still some normal part of their life that they were holding on to. Did members of your family have these kinds of artifacts that um, this exhibit is, is highlighting? Were there objects that helped oh, yes. them? Yeah, tell me, yes. about, tell me a story. Um, from my mother's family, who were originally from Poland, there, I don't think there are artifacts. There are some photographs, but because Poland was invaded so early, um, the destruction in that way, you know, there's the least amount of artifacts, I think. My father's family was in Western Europe, and his parents, my paternal grandparents, were hidden in Belgium during the war. And because they were hidden, they had certain things with them. So we have uh, prayer books. We have a Gemara set, which is um, uh, the oral law as opposed to the written law in Jewish tradition. We have uh, wine cups, goblets that we use every week. We have candlesticks that my grandmother used to light candles every Friday night for the Sabbath. And uh, um, quite a few photographs. My father was a hidden child. Uh, He was born in Germany, and uh, my father's family moved to Belgium when things got worse, and they thought they might be better in Belgium. But eventually, my grandparents went into hiding. One son was deported to Auschwitz, my uncle, and my father was hidden in a, a monastery in Belgium. So we have the dictionary that had his fake name in it hmm. um, that he kept at his bedside table in this place just to uh, complete his fake identity. He also, my grandmother gave him a blanket to keep warm, and he actually survived this experience with the dic- dictionary and the blanket. I have no idea where the blanket is, but. I do have the dictionary in my home. So it's very valuable to me to have these artifacts as a testimony to what happened during these horrible years, but they're also a sign of survival at the same time. You also mentioned Eisenhower and journalists and coming in and and preserving these stories, work that is still ongoing. I have two questions about that. One is, that is so important because what we know about how effectively and engaged the Nazi regime was in propaganda. They would send film crews into the ghettos and purposely make them look like everything was okay. And they used new film techniques to make that compelling. But also, as more and more of the survivors live to the end of their natural lives, we have fewer and fewer people who have the living memory of a lived experience in the Holocaust. Talk a little bit about how some of these things through exhibits like this are preserved as we have fewer and fewer elders among us to say, I was there, I survived. So uh, there is a big challenge to uh, getting as many survivor testimonies as possible. These testimonies become so, so important. Uh, Part of the problem in preserving survivor testimonies is that initially when the collection of testimonies began, the means to record them are not as advanced as they are today. So now it's not only preserving the testimonies and getting as much information as possible, but also preserving the tapes that were originally used into livable form, you know, in terms of the technology. Um, There are other ways of documenting the lives of survivors. In Yad Vashem, there's a project called Pages of Testimony. It's a one-page fact sheet of each Holocaust victim who perished. 
but survivors fill out this information and between the two sources of information of testimonies and pages of testimony for victims who perished, we can aim to a complete picture of life. Um, other ways of documenting information on Holocaust survivors are in their countries of origin to go through the archives of hometowns and compile that information. As uh, the political climate changed in Europe over the years, more and more archives are accessible. So this is another way of completing the information. What also is uh, a common trend now is that second and third generation family members of Holocaust survivors speak to continue telling the stories of their parents and grandparents. So it's another way of, of preserving the memories and making sure they are heard for now and for the future. I want to say thank you as well for letting me jump in and ask a few <laughs> questions. It's such a, an important story, and you're doing such meaningful, powerful work. Um, so thank you for spending time with us today. I'll turn it over to Ben if he has any more final well, thoughts. Well, Lori, you and I ought to do shows together more often. Um, <laughs> Surprise. Yeah. Uh, Marlene, thanks for everything. Uh, I appreciate the opportunity to chat with you today and uh, wish the, the show. Where else has it been around the country? I was going to ask you about uh, that. It has been uh, on the West Coast, up and down the East Coast, in the Midwest. I'm trying to think because we offer it to communities, mm -hmm. you know, community organizations, and I do presentations in schools all around the country. Yeah. And we have teacher training programs. Our conference last year, we have an annual teachers conference called the ARFA Conference on Holocaust education. Okay. Uh, we had teachers from 37 states attend our program. Okay. And in each program, we offer information about our traveling exhibits. What kind of questions do kids ask you, Marlene, when you're telling these stories? What do kids bring to the conversation? It's very interesting. Uh, the No Child's Play exhibit usually gets uh, the same reaction from kids, is that they never understood that uh, Jewish children had a normal life before the war mm. because what what they understand about the Holocaust is the death and destruction, and it, it's our feeling, meaning the Yad Vashem educational approach to present Jewish life that it existed before the war and it continued after the war. So I think it gives children a more uh, complete picture right. of what it meant to be Jewish not just from 1939 to 1945, but that there was a, a rich, robust civilization before mm -hmm. that uh, rebuilt itself after. And it's a very strong mes message for children to understand tragedy that way, that there is rebirth, that there is survival and resilience that can uh, persevere. So these are powerful messages aside from the important historical information that they are learning. Right. A message of hope. Excellent. Well, Marlene, thanks a lot for this, and um, we will uh, look forward to seeing the exhibit and understanding it when it gets here next week, and we sure appreciate you working with the Jewish Interfaith Education Council to bring it to South Dakota. It's a privilege to do so, and thank you for the opportunity to speak with you as well. So thanks to our sponsor, the South Dakota Historical Society Foundation, and our partner, the South Dakota Public Broadcasting. But most importantly, thanks to you, the listener of this show. As always, if you like the show, please share it with friends and help us get the word out. 
The South Dakota Historical Society can be found on the web at history.sd.gov, and we'd appreciate you checking us out. Now go do some history. History.